Well, it's good to have you here this morning. My name is Tom. I haven't met you, and I, I got a confession to make. I love hamburgers. No, I mean really, like nine times out of ten, maybe 99 times out of 100, if you were with me at a restaurant and, and the, the hamburgers looked tempting. I had a staff worker once who said to me, after multiple years of working together, he said, you know, I don't think I've ever seen you eat anything else. <laughs> like when we were out, you know. Because the truth is, hamburgers are like a pathway to my goodwill. I mean, I just want to let you know that. They're like, and so then it got me thinking this week, are they a pathway to anyone else's goodwill? I mean, could that be true of others, that hamburgers could be a pathway to goodwill? So I, I got to thinking about that. And then I remembered my friends, Evan and Preston. Now, Evan and Preston are co-pastors at the uh, church, uh, recent church plant, but it's been, it's been on its own feet, uh, doing incredible work in Chestermere, Alberta, Lake Ridge Community Church. And Evan and Preston, um, they, they, they planted this church. Um, I think uh, Preston came in a little later, but they planted this church. And here's one of their goals. They, as a church, want to make Chestermere an incredible place to live. Like, they actually want to live into this community and make the Chestermere community an amazing neighborhood. And so they do that in a lot of different ways. It's kind of the mission of the church to see the Chestermere community be amazing, even more amazing than it is. So, um, for example, they host an annual soapbox derby which has been growing year after year. Like they had like 60 different soapbox derbies in this year and they race down a hill and it's become this huge annual event hosted by the church. Uh, they oversee the whole uh, Welcome to Chestermere program. It's called a lot of different things. Theirs is called Mighty Neighborly. And they oversee it on behalf of the, the city, like on behalf of the whole, the church takes it. So when every new person arrives in Chestermere, Ding dong, guess who shows up at the door? Members of the Lake Ridge community. Now, they don't come in, you know, on behalf of the church. They come on behalf of Chestermere. They come on behalf, and they're not there to, like, promote the church. They're there to just be servants of the community. I can't believe what that's doing. Um, but, back to the burgers thing, because I couldn't leave that one alone. They also decided as a community that they were going to sponsor, as in pay for, every block party that anyone was willing to throw for their neighborhood in Chestermere. Like as in, go down to City Hall, get the box, or go to M&M's, or wherever, whoever, kind of a co-sponsor, and, and, and they will cover the cost of a block party. So Evan told me this amazing story once about a time when he, he got in on one of the block parties, and I asked him if he'd share it with us. So he sat down with his iPhone and did just that. Let's listen to Evan. you have to turn it up. It's a little quiet. Hi, I am uh, Evan DeWald, and I am uh, one of the pastors at Lake Ridge Community Church in Chestermere. When uh, we started out uh, at Lake Ridge, uh, one of our goals was to find creative ways to bless our community because we believe that Jesus cares uh, deeply about our community. And at that time, the city of Chestermere was doing uh, block parties and promoting block parties. And and, uh, so we kind of signed on as one of the sponsors Uh, in partnership with another local uh, meat shop. And um, what we do and still do to this day uh, was we buy all the food uh, for all the block parties in our city. And uh, uh, at that time, it was about five, six years ago, uh, I was in our new-to-us house, and um, I realized across the street a block party has started, a block party that I hadn't been invited to. And so with all the courage I had, uh, I went across the street with my lawn chair and uh, sat down and, and started to meet some of my neighbors. 
Uh, well, at that time, uh, I was on the driveway of, of what I didn't realize would soon uh, become a very good friend of ours. And uh, she was a single mom, and she had come over and said, Hi there, my name's Jen. And she was like this spinning top, just super talking really, really fast. And she's like, You wouldn't believe this, but a church paid for this food. Can you believe that? And and I was like, oh, that's really cool, you know. Sounds like a good church, you know. And then she, she spun off and started meeting some of her other neighbors, and she was so excited that even her as a single mom could afford to throw a block party and do something that she loved, which was getting to know her neighbors. And it wasn't very long uh, before she kind of came spinning back over to me and said, hey, wait a second, uh, somebody just told me that you were a pastor. Are you the pastor of, of this church? And I, and I said, yeah. Yeah, I am the pastor of that church. And she's like, why didn't you tell me? And I said, well, you know what? Getting the notoriety or whatever it was that, that she would have given us was not actually the point of why we were throwing block parties. We were simply throwing block parties because we believe that Jesus uh, shows up when people gather together and eat together and build relationships and make connections. And so it was more important to me that she as a single mom could throw a block party for her neighbors and get to know them and create space for them to get to know each other. And so in this way, uh, we have done our very, very best to support and encourage uh, this beautiful work that Jesus does um, in just helping people to build connection and relationship with each other. And, um, and we do. We get a lot of credit, actually, for that in our city now. And that's pretty exciting for us. And... Uh, actually has probably turned out to be one of our greatest um, outreach things that we do, um, mostly because we don't go to those parties. Uh, we just allow uh, them to happen because we think Jesus cares about that. And uh, we let God do the rest. And um, yeah, it's turned out to be a real gift uh, to us, but also a way for us to gift um, just a spirit of generosity and hospitality to our city. So thanks for listening. I hope this was helpful, Pastor Tom. That's great. Yeah. And he wanted me to know uh, in this email he sent me uh, yesterday, he said, and, and just so people know, Jen, who we met at that party, like literally plugged into Lake Ridge the next week. And she's become a vibrant member of that community. She went on to be a city councilor in Chestermere and uh, is a huge promoter of all things community. Uh, you got to know this kind of behavior gets favor. <laughs> Chestermere now, man, they don't do anything without saying, I think we should ask someone from Lake Ridge. I think Preston or Evan needs to come down and meet with us and talk about this. They have such amazing favor in that community because they've been faithful. They've been faithful to serve and love on the community that God has placed them in. And this is, it ties directly into what we're looking at this morning because we're going to keep digging into the story of Ruth and discover today how favor follows faithfulness. We're in a series now. We're a few weeks in. If you've missed it, I encourage you to go back. We have uh, our messages on iTunes under Erickson Covenant Church or uh, on our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. First couple weeks, we've explored the opening scenes of this story of Ruth. Ruth is a short story that's tucked into the Old Testament. It's tucked into a time of great economic and political and religious turbulence. There's a lot of things that are going on. People, um, there's good seasons and bad seasons, but it seems to be characterized more by seasons where people are just doing whatever they want and abusing people in the process. But here, tucked in that time of great turbulence, we discover this short little story. It's a gentle story. It's a beautiful story, a story that some of you are familiar with and others are just discovering for the first time. And we are walking through this story and learning together uh, as a community. 
So we learned in chapter 1 how life had fallen apart for Naomi. She'd been displaced with her family. Her, her husband and her son's been di- displaced because of famine. And while she was in this foreign land, her whole family was decimated. And here at the end of chapter 1, she's deciding to return to Bethlehem, her hometown. She's trying to send her daughters-in-law away. One of them goes back home, does the sensible thing, but the other one does this crazy thing, Ruth, who chooses to lose a future, to lose all that could have been for her to love Naomi and to serve her, promising to go back with her. And so they return to Naomi's hometown, not, not Ruth's hometown. She's now going to a foreign place. They return to Naomi's hometown, and they create quite a stir. When Naomi walks in, people can hardly recognize her. She's just, she just a shadow of her former self. The things that have happened to her, things that she's experienced, the way she feels like God has turned against her, make her feel awful. And her name, Naomi, which means pleasant, she rejects it. People are like, could this be Naomi? I mean, is that really her? She's like, no, it's not me. Not anymore. I'm not pleasant anymore. <laughs> Call me Mara, she says. Call me bitter. Because the Lord Almighty has made my life bitter. She comes home empty, devastated, broken with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And so we continue on our story today. I printed the first 13 verses of chapter 2 in your insert, but you can look it up in your Bibles. It's the eighth book in the Old Testament. And we're going to follow through these first 13 verses today. And I'm going to make some commentary as we go to make sense of it, and then we'll wrap it up toward the end. So let's dig in. Ruth chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. You know, as we witness in chapter 1, all of the uh, male members of Naomi's initial immediate family are removed. Within a few verses, her husband Elimelech dies, and then her two sons die, childless, without any sons, without any kids. Within a few verses, Naomi is left widowed with now two daughter-in-laws in tow. Elimelech's family line is over, and we've tried to stress this in the last few weeks, the understanding of ancient culture where the continuation and the preservation of the family line is crucial. It's everything. And for this family, it's done. It's over. But what is this? Here at the start of chapter 2, we discover that Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech, has a relative, maybe a first cousin, something like that. And this relative is a man of standing, a man of, of, of valor and honor, wealth and reputation back home in the Bethlehem community. His name is Boaz. We don't know yet why in this first verse he's been introduced, but his entrance kind of drops into the scene like a teaser. Like, what does this mean? How is this guy relevant? Well, we're going to find out. Verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, wink, wink, she was working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Kind of ties it all together. So Ruth and Naomi arrive in town, empty, broken, and hungry. And Ruth, who's made this radical, life-altering choice, this promise of loyalty to Naomi, she now gets up early on the very first morning she's there and begins to make good on her promise. She's going to be faithful now to support her mother-in-law, Naomi. And I just want to pause you for a moment because it reminds me, right here at the start of the story, it reminds me how often we can make big commitments. We can want good things. 
We, we, can, we can decide even in moments like these or other times in our lives, like, this is the right pathway. This is the right way to go. These things will bring good things to my life. This is a person I need to love and support. This is a way I need to, 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 to schedule things so I can be more present to others in my community or I can spiritually grow. You have those kind of decisions, promises to love or to serve or even promises to follow Jesus. We can stand and make those commitments, but it's actually when we get up the next day, the following Tuesday, you know, weeks later, that we're called to put that faithfulness on the ground. And for Ruth, faithfulness to Naomi meant getting up that next morning, no matter how she was feeling, depressed, awkward, displaced. She's a foreign, a young foreign woman in a strange land, feeling lonely, feeling afraid. However she was feeling that morning, she is going to get up, And she's going to go to work to make sure that Naomi and her have a meal to eat. It's easy to see in the story how amazing and how how faithful and how radical and destiny-shaping her decision was back on the Bethlehem Road. We can see that and then miss how this ordinary, back-breaking, you know, long day in the fields kind of way that this choice is now going to be lived out. I was challenged by that. Well... As it turned out, which literally it means Ruth, Ruth's, it's hard to say this, but this is the, like literal. Ruth's chance, chanced her, that, that's how it's put, emphasis on the stroke of luck business here. Ruth's chance, chanced her upon a field belonging to this relative named Boaz, this man of valor standing that we just met. It's like the big old wink the narrator's trying to give us that he's saying, you know, by the most extreme stroke of luck, you know, Freakonomics here. Ruth ends up working in a field belonging to Boaz, you know, from the clan of her dead father-in-law. Whew, where's this going? What we see as readers of the story is that God has gone before her into the Bethlehem fields. And though she doesn't even know it yet, she's going to find the favor that she's been looking for right there in the fields. Well, not only do you discover that God is already in the fields, God is already at work for her, but his presence in those fields are acknowledged and welcomed by those who work there. So Boaz shows up, verse 4. He arrives from Jerusalem, or from Bethlehem, sorry, and he greets his harvesters, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Now we can glide over this and say, well, that's a bit of pleasant, you know, it's kind of a pleasant greeting between your boss and employees and all that. But you need to hear for what it is. An older, wealthy landowner arrives among his farmhands, and this is the opening exchange between them. And the narrator of the story wants us to hear it, that they all invoke the name of, of Yahweh. They all say the Lord, and I've said this, I'll say it again, that all caps Lord is a code word for the personal name of God, Yahweh. And it was written that way, kind of code, just to protect the holiness of the name the Hebrew people had such high regard for. Boaz calls upon Yahweh, the Lord, to be with them, to be with his workers, and his workers respond that Yahweh would bless him in return. Could it be, this is the story that's being set up, could it be that in this field, Yahweh's not only present, but he's honored there. He's obeyed there. The people there are aware of him and are seeking uh, to glorify him in how they work and live. Verse 5, Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? <laughs> it's kind of a funny question, right? Like we can, we can say that. You can raise our hackles a bit. She doesn't belong to anybody. What are you talking about? Women aren't property. 
which is true, except in that day it was true that they were considered, unfortunately, property. Even when they were loved, they were regarded the property of someone in this ancient culture. Even in some places today, we still see that. But it's actually more likely here that Boaz is simply an attentive boss. He, he, he looks and sees an unfamiliar face. And he wants to know who that is because he knows in that culture a young, unidentified woman working out in the fields. She don't come from nowhere. You know, like she's got a connection. And he wants to know, like, who she's attached to. What, what family is she part of? Who's her, who's her brother? He's a good boss. He wants to know who's gleaning in his fields. And so his overseer replies in verse 6, She's the Moabite who came back from Moab, underscore foreigner, with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has has remained there from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. There's two things that leap out in exchange. I love them. First one, Ruth is already known to them by reputation. They didn't know her by sight. But by reputation, they already knew. Notice what the overseer says. She is the Moabite who came back from Moab. She's not even given a name. But as we'll see in a moment, she already has a name. Her reputation for radical faithfulness to Naomi has given her a name in the community already. She's been talked about. And second, the overseer then relays to his boss, Boaz, what this bold Moabite woman has asked for. And I just think he was cracking a smile the whole time he said it because what she asked was crazy. I have to give you a little bit of background so you can understand it. You see, God had given instructions to his people of how they were to harvest their land so that they could care for the poor. Specific instructions so that they could provide for foreigners, widows, and the fatherless. I'll give you two examples. They're taken from this collection of the first five books of the Old Testament, which kind of constitute the, the, big, the big law that God gave his people. First one is in Leviticus 19, 9 to 10. This is the chapter we looked at a few weeks ago when we talked about setting our loves, the chapter that Jesus quotes when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Another place in the chapter where it says, love, your, love the foreigner as you love yourselves. And, and this is what we read. Pay attention to some of the instructions. I put them on the screen too. When you reap the harvest of your land... Do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings, the leftovers, of of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord, your God. And a little later in Deuteronomy 24, 19, which Deuteronomy is a big recap for the second generation of God's people coming out of Egypt. It's a big recap of everything. And we hear this. Farmers reminded again, when you're harvesting your field and you overlook a sheaf, you know, I've stepped along. Oh, my goodness. There it is. Don't go back and get it. Leave it there. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Okay, so faithful Israelites would, would, would leave harvest behind when they worked in their fields. They wouldn't quite cut to the edges. They wouldn't go back to pick up what was left over. That stuff was left for others who would come, the poor, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. And it was one way that God instilled care for the poor right into the laws of his people. It was like a social welfare program. Um, Here's how the barley harvest would have looked in Boaz's field that day. First, Boaz's men would walk through the standing grain with a sickle. They'd grab bunches, they'd hack them down, and they'd lay them. Okay? Grab, 
slice, lay, grab, slice, lay. Okay? So it's all laying down. And then following them would come female field workers who would gather the fallen grain into bunches and wrap them and place them in piles to then be hauled off the field. Or maybe they would haul it off the field at that moment. After these women then would come the gleaners, the, the poor, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, and they would grab the little bits, a stalk here, a stalk there, a fallen head here. Um, they would, maybe there was a section of standing grain along the edge, and they would tear them up at their roots, or maybe they had a sickle. They would come along and glean. And although the gleaning was commanded in God's law, it doesn't mean that everyone did it, not by a long shot, especially during this time. So we have to kind of uh, not glamorize this image. It's not all pastoral and gentle, you know, with choruses rising from people dancing through the golden sheaves. It's not like that. It's actually super hot, super hard. These gleaners are the most vulnerable people in society. They were often mistreated. Certainly not all landowners are following God's law or welcoming gleaners into their fields. There's strong evidence that they would have driven some away. And other gleaners, would, other, other people would have been competing for very limited resources. All during the time of the judges, as we've already pointed out, when everyone's doing what was right in their own eyes, particularly people, men, doing violently to women whatever they wanted to do. So at the very worst, gleaning was dangerous, especially for a young woman. At best, gleaning was just difficult. Depending on what Ruth would have found and how she would have been treated, she could have worked all day in the blazing sun and not even brought home enough to feed herself or her mother-in-law. So it's no wonder, she said to Naomi, she was hoping that she'd find someone who would show her favor. But there's another reason that Ruth needs someone in whose eyes she finds favor because bold Ruth, who we've already seen show up on the Bethlehem road, this faithful woman is not content for just, just gathering a few leftovers for Naomi. She's left everything to follow Naomi, and she's going to be faithful to her. And so Ruth is bringing that vow of faithfulness to the fields, and she goes beyond what any gleaner had any right to ask. What does she say? This is important. Ruth does not ask to glean with the other gleaners. She asks to glean among the harvesters. This is easy to miss, but it's right there. Did you get that? Rather than timidly hanging back to pick up a few leftovers and a few things that are on the edges and corners, Ruth audaciously asks to gather grain among the female field workers right behind the men who are cutting down the grain. She wants to gather among the sheaves, not just the stuff that's left behind after they've picked them all up. I love this. This is one bold woman. She's risky and brash. And she's faithful. Ruth is determined to provide for Naomi, and she risks personal abuse, rejection, harm, sideways glances, angry stares to fulfill her vow of faithfulness. No wonder she's on the hunt for someone who's going to favor her, because she's going to need it. So what I also think is great is when she asks, you know, when she shows up at the field, she, she has no idea whose field this is. We do. But she doesn't know. She doesn't know how she's going to be received. She doesn't know what's going to happen to her, but she asks anyway. I think Boaz's eyes kind of went wide when his foreman told him that she'd asked that. I mean, wow. But I also think the foreman, it's evidence that he knew what his master would have said. Because you notice this foreman didn't forbid Ruth from doing it. She'd been already working much of the day. I think it tells us something about Boaz. 
tells us something about his character. It tells us something about the fields and the workers among him, that maybe, just maybe there, the presence of Yahweh is being honored in the fields. Well, what's Boaz going to do? He sees Ruth. He knows now who she is, how vulnerable she is. He's a rich man with powerful, you know, powerful resources. How is he going to respond? He responds in a way that is so God-honoring that it actually astonishes us. So, so Ruth says, in, uh, Boaz says to Ruth in verse 8, my daughter, evidence of a big age gap there, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. He offers protection to this much younger woman. That's what he's doing here. Verse 9, watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. In other words, get ahead of the other gleaners right where his workers are. He says, I told the man not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Boaz institutes the first sexual harassment policy in the workplace. And he does it during a time where people were abusing each other left, right, and center. And then, to be even more countercultural, he tells her to go and drink from water that the men have drawn. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. In that culture, women draw the water for the men. But no, he says, go ahead, drink from the water my men have drawn. Boaz responds to Ruth's faithfulness with favor, with generosity that exceeds any expectation, and she knows it. Look at her response, verse 10. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you would notice me, a foreigner? And that is actually the question, isn't it? I mean, Ruth took a huge risk. She put herself way out there. She almost demanded that someone either show me favor or force me out. That's kind of what she was doing. She's so bold here that favor would have to follow her or she was going to be in trouble. So why favor? Why does Boaz show her favor? Her faithful reputation paved the way for his favorable response. Listen to what he says, verse 11. In response to her question, why have you shown favor? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What a blessing he offers her. What a way of acknowledging her faithfulness. Little does Boaz know that he, right now, is being, becoming a key partner in this refuge that God is offering, both now as he protects and provides for Naomi and Ruth, and in the future in a surprising way where he ends up being part of rescuing the whole family line. God really is at work in these fields. And Boaz, this faithful man of honor, responds with the grace of his God to the needs of Naomi and Ruth. But more than that, Ruth's radical faithfulness, her bold ask, has actually inspired Boaz to live more faithfully himself. You see, many of the ones who were even trying to keep the law would keep Keep the gleaning laws. They'd say, well, don't harvest the edge. But let me ask you, how close, is the, how close is the edge? Is it a foot? Is it four feet? Is it a few scraggly things along the edge? What's an edge? How big does that need to be? 
How careful do you need to instruct your workers to pick up so they don't have to go back? You know, those kinds of questions can come when someone wants to keep the law, but isn't that concerned about living out God's heart? What you see here with Boaz is rather than just keeping the letter of the gleaning laws, Boaz is now called to live into the spirit of God's law, which is to love the foreigner as you love yourself, to care for the very real needs of the poor by providing protection and provision for them. Ruth's great faithfulness as a foreigner is actually creating waves of greater faithfulness among God's own people. And it's a great comfort to Ruth. In the last verse for today, we read, May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. Well, if you'll pardon the pun, what can we glean from all this today? At least four things. Here they are. One, faithfulness is a daily choice. Live out in hard work. I think this really stands out in this passage. I'm so struck with Ruth's choice on the highway and how it, it really is made real in the fields. And I, I thought about how our commitment, our commitment to um, love our spouse. You know, I see a lot of people go to the altar. You know that. I'm always struck at how (laughs) the challenge really comes later, doesn't it? As we have to live out that vow in the daily hard work of marriage. Our pledge to to follow Jesus, uh, to to allow the Holy Spirit to do this daily work in us where we put one foot in front of the other and we we, we put into our lives certain practices on a a daily level. You know, in the morning when we get up or in the the afternoon when we gather together or or the kinds of things we, we intentionally do to live out that commitment so that the Holy Spirit will work on us and will change us. And we as a church have said we want to be a church that helps people find and follow Jesus. But what does that mean in the way that we program and the way that we give and the staff and the things that we think about and pray about, how do we actually put that on the ground? I was struck by radical faithfulness. It's really seen in the hot day of work the day after. Two, God's favor often flows through the generosity of others, particularly those who have welcomed God into their daily lives. I'm encouraged by this because what it tells me is that you and I can be conduits of God's favor to others. You and I, as we are faithful, are able to then be the means with which God cares for those who are being faithful as well. Boaz is swept into God's story by Ruth's faithfulness. And now God is going to use Boaz to show favor to her. But what we discover as the story unfolds is that he will then also experience God's favor through her generosity, through her faithfulness, that we together, through the generosity that God uh, creates in us and moves us into, is one of the ways that God shows favor to others. Number three, great faithfulness inspires greater faithfulness. Generosity begets generosity. You know, when we are faithful to love or to witness or to give, we will, by God's grace, inspire others to more faithfulness, to more generosity. This is why I encourage the telling of stories to share together, like, how is God calling you to take a next step, to, to, to reach out to someone, to, to, to get over some anxiety or struggle you've been having to actually reach out to that friend? Because I know one thing. I'm inspired to tell others about Jesus when I hear your stories of, of telling others about Jesus. I'm inspired. You know, I'm inspired to pray more boldly. When you tell me of a bold prayer that you're praying, well, that inspires me. And I think, wow, 
I got to be done with these paltry prayers that are just lame. Don't require any kind of favor to show up on that one. I need to live into the vision that God has given me and given us. You know, Ruth chose to lose all so she could love Naomi. But what she discovers as this story unfolds is that her choice to lose was not lost on God. It never is. He sees the choices we make. He knows when we have made a radical choice to be faithful. God honors that. We're reminded of the time when some of Jesus' followers said, we've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus says, oh, no, no. You have no idea what you're going to, you have no idea how much God has seen what you've given up and how he will be faithful to you. We discover through this story that God is faithful to show favor for our faithfulness. God is up to something good. So number four, favor follows faithfulness. And we've heard this all through the story and we'll kind of land here. Not the other way around. You know, so often we want to wait to see if there's favor before being faithful, right? We've got to hedge our bets. <laughs> and I don't blame us. But what we discover in this story is that faithfulness is making the right choice to follow the right path, to love, to serve, to lay our lives down. And we don't wait for favor to decide if that's right. We hear God's call to follow him. We hear God's call to serve others. We hear God's call to, to get into this business of constantly seeking the benefit of others over ourselves. We, we, we hear the call to seek reconciliation when relationships have been shattered. We, we know that this is a call. And so we believe God and we step into that, believing and trusting that favor will follow faithfulness. I don't mean that everything is always awesome, but I do believe that God honors that. God is up to something good. God is with us in the fields. And his favor will follow our faithfulness. When we're faithful to him at high school, by reaching out to a friend, by, by, by loving someone that no one else likes, his favor will follow that faithfulness. When we honor him in the integrity of our work, with the work of our hands, the work of our minds, when we are doing the job given to us with that kind of integrity, being faithful to what he's given us, God's favor will follow that. Wherever we are, coffee shops or fields or in our own homes, as we are faithful, God will follow it with favor. Well, how does that make a difference for us? I think knowing that God can be trusted when we've been faithful changes everything. There are times when we wonder, right? There's times when we've struck out we, there and we're, we're kind of hanging. We're like Ruth. We're early in the day and we've made a big ask and we're wondering, is this going to work? Am I going to get stoned for this or rejected for this or thrown to the side for this? But we can trust that because of who God is, we can actually be bold. We can actually take risks on behalf of others. We can, we can give up things to follow, knowing that God will respond because he's present and he's working. He's already present on our behalf. It doesn't mean the work's over. You know, the hot day of labor is still before us. You know, there's still sweat and exertion and difficulty of being faithful every day. Being faithful in your home to raise those kids that God has given you. Be faithful in your work, even when your boss does not appreciate what you're doing. To be faithful with the, the tasks that we've been given here in the church, in our families, in our community. There's still the hard work ahead of us. But somehow, with God on our side and God present in the mix, our work takes on a new meaning. We can actually experience joy in our faithful labor, knowing that God is present. And that even when we can't see it, even when we aren't even sure how it's going to turn out, we can believe that God is actually taking these things and working them out for our good, and I believe for the good of others around us. 
So where are you? Where are you at in your life right now? What is the spot where you feel like, I'm being faithful, Lord. I need your favor to follow me. What is that spot? Maybe it's a particular relationship. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a job situation. Maybe it's something that's going on in your marriage, something with your kids or a neighbor. Maybe it's something that you're wrestling with even here in our community, a place where you've been struggling to serve. I don't know where it is for you, but I, I want you to ask the question, where is it that God has called you to be faithful? And are you willing today to rethink your faithfulness, knowing that God is present, that he sees your faithfulness, and he wants to follow you with favor, to trust that God is present, to be bold as we live into those faithful commitments, knowing that God will never leave us, never forsake us. Because the bottom line is this, God's favor always exceeds our faithfulness, always. We cannot out-faithful God. We can't out-favor him. God is faithful to show more favor to us so that we can be then more faithful to him. And so today as we leave, I want to challenge you, I want to encourage you that we can live faithfully into his vision for us, for you, for your family, for our church for this community that God has placed us in, knowing that he is not only present here, but being acknowledged, that he's here working among us to show favor and through us to inspire others to join us in greater faithfulness. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful to you, the one who showed the greatest faithfulness of all, a faithfulness so great that even when your life was shattered, even when it looked like all hope was lost. What no one else knew was that the Father would never leave you or forsake you. And rising again from the dead, you have shown not only his faithfulness and your faithfulness and his favor and your favor, but you've called us now into this life where we are able to serve and be faithful and live the life you've called us to live, trusting and knowing that none of it is lost to you. And so today I pray for those among us who, who maybe are struggling with a particular place in their life where they're feeling lost or alone, feeling like Ruth, feeling displaced, feeling anxious. I pray that you would birth in them a bold ask, a renewed faithfulness, a greater joy because you are present in their lives, in our lives. I pray that we would experience your favor as we are faithful. Not that we earn your favor, but that we see your faithfulness to us in pouring your favor into our lives. And today, today we go, knowing that we can promise faithfulness today and live out that promise tomorrow because you are with us. In your name we pray. Amen.